Hi, and welcome to Doing the Opposite Business Disruptors, the podcast where you get to meet incredible leaders who have swum against the tide, thrown out the rule book, and changed the way their sector does business. I'm Jeff Dewey, best-selling author and CEO of CloudFM. Before I begin, I'm pleased to announce that for season three, you can now find all of our podcasts in video form on YouTube. Simply search for Jeff Dewing or click the link in the show notes. Today, you're going to meet Nazir Abzal, OBE. Nazir was the Chief Crown Prosecutor for the Northwest of England and formerly the Director in London. Nazir was also Chief Exec of the country's Police and Crime Commissioners. He has written two books. The Prosecutor, now being made into a multi-part drama, and most recently, The Race to the Top. Nazir's focus has been predominantly in the era of violence against women and girls, child sexual abuse, and honour-based violence. Despite carrying out over 100,000 prosecutions, his most notable was the so-called Rochdale Grooming Gang, all of which changed the landscape of child protection for the future. When you listen to his story, this truly brings to life the purpose of my podcast. Doing the opposite, taking on the establishment, is no mean feat. And he showed no fear in facing such a task. Hi, and welcome, Nazir, to the podcast. I can't wait for this conversation. How are you? I'm very well, Jeff. Good to speak to you. Uh, looking forward to it myself. Great stuff, great stuff. Listen, Nazir, I've obviously read your book. It's The Prosecutor is the one I'm referring to. I know you've done a few. And what I find fascinating is that everybody's got a story, but of course, there's always twists and turns and value in everyone's story. But your story has gripped me to a level that means I've been so looking forward to this to this conversation. So I think before we sort of get into the nitty gritty, perhaps if you can give me sort of a one minute, just quick sort of snapshot of your journey in terms of what the purpose of your existence is all about. Yeah. Uh- I think the, the, the memoir is about amplifying the voices of the unheard. And my whole life has been about trying to make it easier, better for people who've not been listened to to be heard. And so I did that. I was the first uh, minority chief prosecutor in this country. I was chief prosecutor more than 20 years ago. I spent 25 years in prosecuting. And then in the last six or seven years, I've been working in either public and private sector, again, trying to find a way by which the authority, people in power, get to hear the people who um, they are responsible for and try to bridge that gap and changing the laws, changing the way people do things. I never stop. You know, I, I think you use the word disruptor in some of your mm. writings. I, I am a disruptor, yeah. you know, uh, a proper pain in the ass. I think is one <laughs> way of describing it. So, listen, I'm, I'm passionate about doing the best we can to justify our existence and making the world a better place for the people to follow on. But one of the things you can see in people, especially those that want to do good, when you have the establishment, that might be the NHS, it might be a police force, it might be the criminal environment, we all know about the speed of stuff. We know about the pain. We know about the bureaucracy, the red tape, the self-protectionism, all the things that go on. What do you think it is that enables somebody like you, and there's not many people like you, that 
just don't give up? What is it that gets you out when you know you're facing these barriers? You know, I've, I've, I, when I was writing my memoirs, I tried to understand that. You know, when I, my my parents came from the very traditional parts of Pakistan. They came to the very traditional parts of Birmingham, where I was born. Um, they, uh, you know, we grew up in the 60s and 70s when we had nothing. I had no role models. You know, the role models I had as a lawyer, or hopefully as a lawyer, were Mahatma Gandhi, uh, Nelson Mandela, and Atticus Finch. And uh, Atticus Finch is fictional. Mahatma Gandhi was had been murdered by then, and Nelson Mandela was in prison at that time. So those were my role models. Uh, I, my, you know, when I was eight, my my eight year old cousin died in my arms, uh, and I carried her for four hours basically. When I was fourteen, my uncle was murdered by the IRA. Uh, in Northern Ireland, you know, I've been touched by tragedy. I've been beaten black and blue by racists myself. Uh, three guys used, used my head as a football on one occasion. And uh, when you've been through all of that, they, they, use, they call it resilience these days. I don't know what it was, just getting through life back in the day. And having experienced the other side, i.e. being the victim, I realized actually there are many other people like me, and we need, they need a voice too. Though they have a voice, they're just not listened to. And so I, you know, I find every opportunity I can to try and change the journey that they go on so they don't have to go on the journey that I went on, which was um, painful. When you are going through your journey and you've clearly established your purpose about giving people a voice, and it's not just about giving people a voice, it's about creating a better world for them in one form or another. And yeah. I think when you are faced with these brick walls, you know, these barriers, the establishment, you know, what there must be times you've gone home and said, Why am I bothering? Well, lots of times. But that just gives me motivation to try again tomorrow. Everybody has leverage in some way, shape or form. And I'm very fortunate. Yeah, you know, I've been very fortunate, and uh, I've always been at the sort of door of government. I've been working with ministers. I've been working with senior leaders in justice and 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 those environments. And so I have access. I fought for that access. It wasn't given to me on a plate. Uh, and that means that if uh, the way you help other people is by opening a door for them or showing them where the door is, and. That, I think, is where uh, I've been able to achieve whatever success I have achieved, is being able to give people access and to use my networks for the greater good, so to speak. And, you know, there's no getting away from it. There's no shortcuts. You know, I worked, you know, this is probably an experience a lot of uh, children of immigrants will experience. I work seven days a week, Mm. 365 days a year. I mean, when I left prosecuting uh, seven years ago, Jeff, I had 120 days of leave to take. Yeah. <laughs> literally, I wasn't taking. <laughs> you know, I literally wasn't taking the leave I was entitled to. I don't recommend this to anybody, by the way. Um, but it was the way I coped was simply, you know, worked as hard as I could. You know, also, when you're engaging with the public, you can't do a nine to five job. But they're working too. So my evenings were taken, my weekends were taken. It was every opportunity and any opportunity and also pushing yourself out of your comfort zones. You know, Uh, that's how you grow yourself. But I guess it's also the fact that it's all, if, if uh, I'm not on a mission there to destroy politicians, as I'd like to, but um, if you look at 
some of the lip surface that gets played when you've got, you know, especially in the broadcasting world, where the public only see what is being broadcast, that's their medium, and therefore they're influenced by that. And you'll listen to somebody go to a politician that says, look, my son got run over by an American woman, she's put under protection, and she's exported back to America, we can't get access. And then the politician does an interview and says, yeah, we really feel for the family, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's all lip service. It's about how do you put yourself in their shoes? And I think the bit I loved about your book was you you sort of you you spoke you touched on I think you had to read between the lines a little bit but you put yourself in their shoes and said what if this was me and that's what gave you the motivation is what it appears to be Jeff leadership takes many forms two things that we don't do very well leaders is empathy and listening and they're connected uh, you know it's, empathy isn't doesn't mean just feeling sorry for someone or or sympathizing with them empathy is understanding them. And, and most people don't have the ability to articulate how they feel. They don't know what the, they don't know themselves how they feel. They certainly don't know what to do. Um, and so I think I'm, I've, I've learned how to listen. I'm privileged and honored that people want to set, tell me their stories. And, and then when they've done that, well, you can do one or two things. You can say, well, thank you and goodbye. Uh, or right. What am I going to do for you? How can we work together to make, bring the change in some way? And that's the, the latter is me. Uh, and, Politicians, you've described them. I know hundreds of politicians. I've worked with them for three, de- four de- three decades. And more often than not, they are thinking about the next meeting. Yeah. Uh, uh, they're not thinking about the one they're in. And the way you described it a moment ago, which is, you know, lip service, that's fair description, I'm afraid. Um, you know, they think about where the next vote is going to come from, uh, maybe the next donor, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> rather than thinking in terms of how can I help this particular person in front of me who has no power. And this is the thing. Society is driven. You mentioned the media. Media has power. Politicians have power. Establishment generally has power. The average citizen has none of that. And so how do they bring some change or how do they get justice? They've got to then tap into somebody like me or others like me who have the ability to give them hope. And sometimes you can't deliver what they want. I mean, the number of times when, you know, I've prosecuted hundreds of homicides in my life and, you know, at the end of the day, yes, somebody's brought to justice, but that doesn't bring their child back. Yeah, it doesn't bring their loved one back. So you've got to recognize that, you know, I've seen people come out of a courtroom cheering, I mean, my lawyers cheering at the success of being able to, you know, bring the bad guy to justice. And then there's over there is the family who will never go back to where they were a year, a year before, you know, and that's empathy or lack of empathy. Yeah, and I guess as well, when you think about it, I guess you look at some of these families that meet the public eye through media, where they'll go on to start a charity with only one ambition, and that's to stop it happening to somebody else, and that gives them a purpose, right? You know, your Claire's Law, which is about uh, you're entitled to know um, the background of somebody you're in a relationship with. There's Helen's Law, uh, which is if the person who killed you, your loved one, doesn't tell you where the body is, that they, they're not allowed to come out of prison uh, until such time as they do. You know, all, they have a name because of some brave, bold, c- courageous person who realized 
I can't get my loved one back or I can't fix what what's happened to me, but I don't want A, B and C to have to go through what I did. And again, that's a true purpose because listening to your book, when you talk a lot about um, you know, honour crimes, and it isn't just the perpetrator, it's the people that influence the perpetrator, the people that actually wanted the outcome. And it's how do you get access to them? And you explain how difficult that was, but you wasn't prepared to accept that that was okay. You had to find a way. No. No, you know, the, the thing with honour is uh, uh, it's a power and control thing. You know, the reality is that there are vulnerable people and there are people who control them. And uh, time and time again, Jeff, it's women that the, uh, suffer, suffer as a result of, of this issue. Uh, they carry the honour. I remember a father saying to me a long time ago, he said, a particular father, in he said to me, yeah, you don't get it. He said, my son has gone to jail for crack, dealing crack cocaine. Six years he got, and my daughter, she wants to marry someone of her own choice. What shame she brings to my family. It's unbelievable, isn't it? I was thinking, hang on a minute. <laughs> Have you just sidestepped what you told me about your son? <laughs> you know? So men and boys can do what they like, yeah. girls and women yeah. can't do. And uh, I think it was just a lack. What drives me again is, a lack, is unfairness. Uh, and inequalities, and and people need to be treated equally. But you know, you're right. It's not just the perpetrator. There are people who encourage, who incite, um, who or just just by not saying anything, allow people to get away with literally murder. And they too need to recognise their responsibilities. But that again is a cultural thing, right? So even though you might be in an environment in in our country where we have a, a justice system and a set of rules and ethics and, and values, you're, you're now addressing people that don't understand those values potentially. And how do you... Well, they have their own values. Of course. Absolutely. And, and their values are, um, sometimes it's about, you know, the family is the most important thing. That's a, that's a strong value, isn't it? However, then it becomes... Therefore, you can't step out of line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, otherwise, the family yeah. is undermined. Yeah, yeah. So there's a strong value, with, a, with a, then, then there's a nefarious element to it. So you've got to recognize that. You can say to people, look, um, you, you, your family can will be strong. What's the worst thing you can do to your family is by just – I remember I, I prosecuted this um, – 70-year-old woman who'd murdered her and her uh, her son had murdered her son's wife. And uh, I went, I was regularly going around prisons in those days. And I went to Holloway Prison and this woman was now, which was that time was a woman's prison. And she was, you know, going to serve the rest of her life in prison, 25 years. And I went there and there she was in the prison. And I don't know what I expected. Did I expect her to say, um, I don't know, remorse? No, she abused me like nobody's business. She never, you know, nothing was going to change no, her. And no. actually, she felt she'd done the right yeah, thing course, yeah. by her family yeah. and by her community. Uh, and, um, you know, she was prepared to, quote, unquote, pay the price. Uh, and that I was the bad guy. It does come down to uh, an interpretation of values, if you like. But um, it is strange. So, listen, coming back to your personal life where you've committed the time and effort in terms of um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, and so on. During that time, you've had some big challenges. You've had a lot of work. And one of the things that we talk about in leadership is that if you're going to progress in life, there's one thing you have to do. You have to have time to reflect. You have to be able to think about what's going on around you. And one of the biggest challenges people have in the working world these days is they don't give themselves time to think. They just jump from stone to stone to stone and then wonder where they're going to end up. How did you go about that when you were thinking about Tony establishment? How did you go about that process? Jeff, I have, I have two advantages. Uh, one probably isn't seen as an advantage, and that's I only sleep four or five hours a night, you know, and have done for 30-odd years. So I have a 19-hour day 
to fill with stuff. That's an advantage and maybe might shorten my life. I don't know. That's one element. I made a conscious choice about 20 years ago when I was working in London. I was chief in London. And my friends wanted to meet me and go do things with them. My family were very young at that time, and I wanted to be with them. My work was demanding, and I was literally thinking, where, what, who, what? you know, how, how do I? And I made a conscious choice, and, I, you know, I don't regret it. But I told my friends, uh, I'll see you when I see you. And so that meant that, you know, once or twice a year, I'd meet people socially. I decided that the two most important things to me were my family and the work I was doing. And that something, and so rather than having, you know, rather than the pain of, you know, b- balancing X, I made a judgment that two out of three ain't bad. I think Meatloaf said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, I, so literally I focused on family and work and that gave me time, which otherwise I wouldn't have, you know, I, I don't regret it. Uh, it meant that you know when I was I wasn't traveling to go to a bar or something or or play golf or whatever it is I was I would be able to reflect upon what I've done where I need to go and also tap into expertise I'm not there are better lawyers than me there are better politicians or people who in you know powerful people than I and I would tap into those people and their knowledge and their experience there's no sure you know you can be at the top of your profession but still have mentors and coaches of course and it's important that you do actually and it's also important you look outside of your own profession because you know um you know I've talked to people in business who you know I've never been well particularly in the private sector but I will talk to them about how they manage things and how they may manage the situation and that guides me and helps me. Nobody has all the answers, and I'm the last one to say that I do. I, what I do have is people who do have the answers, and so I'm quick to tap into their knowledge and expertise. I'm I'm good at um, or have the ability to reflect upon things. I'm, I'm also really keen. I learn more from my failures than I do from my successes. That's a golden rule of leadership, right? That's how you learn. A hundred percent, hundred percent, and 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 also you don't don't go around thinking it's a failure. It's a learning opportunity. I use the analogy, you've got all these scientists going to work every single day trying to cure cancer. Do they come home every single day of their life and say I'm a failure? Of course they don't. They're in a different mindset. We're trying new things to find the answer, right? So failure is how you learn. If you don't fail, you don't learn. It's as simple as that. No, and actually you get complacent if you succeed all the time. I think you are. And it gets boring, right? (laughs) And and I don't want to meet someone that says they're always succeeding because I think they'll be boring. But anyway, moving on from that bit, I guess the next bit is um, when you look at the things that you've done and the things that you've been passionate about and you've you've taken on board, the media is a big problem to me. Not because of the people in media, but because of the institution and the methodology and the outcomes. Because at the moment, you've got the general public going, the British police force are corrupt. But in reality, yes, there's some challenges. There's a challenge in any organisation of group of people. But there's clearly the minority the public will portray as a major, major problem. So how do you... And I'm not suggesting you know the answer to this, but when you think about you know the, the chief commissioner's now got to think, Jesus, I've now got this, I've got crime to sort out, but I've now got to sort this problem out. That's actually commanding more attention from the public. Yeah, well, I mean, I work with people like him and, and uh, Mark Rowley, who's a commissioner of the Met. Um, again, you can't solve all these problems yourself. You've got to, uh, you've got to, firstly, Jeff, start from the basis that there is a problem. The worst thing you can be is in denial yeah, about being course, a problem, yeah. because if you don't accept there's a problem, you'll never fix it. Public confidence is really low. We know that for a fact. You're quite right to say it's a minority of officers, but a minority can be several hundred, uh, several thousand, you know? So that's a significant number. And also, it has to be said also, when you've got a Warren card, that is real power. 
you know, uh, if it's misused and, and abused. So we recognize there's a problem, but there are answers. And the answers, not necessarily from your own organization, that can be from other parts of the organization uh, or other organizations. You know, how do they respond to massive existential threat? The other side to be said, to, said uh, Jeff, is we all need the police. We all need a health service. We may have concerns about the way things are. We may have concerns about individuals within. At the end of the day, these are institutions that we desperately need to succeed. And so I think there's a will to help him and the others who are trying to tackle these issues because we want it to be successful. We don't want it to fail. It can't afford to fail. Of course, and therefore there has to be that motivation to find a way, right? There is. And, and you know, there, as I said, there's more good people than there is bad people, you know. And I think that's the, that's always the thing that fills me with optimism, is that there are people who are working together, all of us, trying to make things better. Uh, and I'd rather work with people like that than the naysayers who are just completely in your ear all the time about how bad things are, but they won't do anything about it. You know, and you mentioned the media. You know, I've worked with the media for a long, long time, and I, you know, just done, done an interview with BBC News tonight. And the, the, the thing with the media is, they have their own agenda, and they have to fill twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week of content. And and the thing that excites them and excites the people, the public, isn't good news. It's bad news. Yeah. You know, Jeff and I having a chat wouldn't make the first uh, news at 10, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Jeff and, I, Jeff and I having a little battle over something yeah, might. Yeah, you know? yeah, of course. And so I think that we have to recognize that. But as I say, the media have 24 hours a day, seven days a week to fill. So there's an opportunity for us to put out some good news stories and things that are going really well. And, you know, they, they, they want to hear them and they will broadcast them or write about them if we tell them. The knee-jerk reaction, the lazy reaction, is just to focus on negativity. I think you're actually right. It's funny how the, the general public will be drawn to negativity if they hear a story about something that is all oh, what's the other cure. It's, it's not about oh, we've just heard that um, you know the entire royal family have become reunited. Well, that's a bit boring. I much like, I much preferred it when I was all having a row with each other. So it's war, exactly. <laughs> it's, and, it's, yeah. and it's the way. No, no, it's, this yeah. is the, the nature of things. And also, there's something peculiarly British about this. I prosecuted a case called Baby P a long time ago, which was a young boy that was murdered by members of his family. And it's what we did afterwards. When it became publicly known, we this is what we wanted. We wanted a head to roll. So the head of social services was told to resign. The second thing that uh, we did was we, we want them to change the way they look at protect children. And so they brought in a brand new tick box risk assessment tool. And you will be known as Jeff, no tick box to no. save anybody's life. No, the so they brought this brought in a new way of engineering the process. The third thing that happens is that hundreds of experienced social workers left the profession because they didn't want to be in a profession where they were no longer applying their judgment. And now, after bringing in new leadership, new ways of working, more children were killed by their carers than ever before. We don't learn. You know, we got we actually made it worse by going as we did, you know, going full forever and, and attacking the way things are, rather than thinking, what actually does work? What can make things better? That brings me on to something I'm really quite passionate about and have a view on. If you can imagine that we're in this scenario now where we've got ridiculous inflation, we've got interest rates off the, off, off the scale, we've got almost a general strike, and we've got the politicians telling us what the answers are, right, and what they're going to do about it. And you now come back to use your care worker scenario. One of the things we do in business, which the public sector could learn from the private sector, is that we are the strategists. We come up with the decisions and the strategy of how we're going to run our business, how we're going to create the outcomes and the solutions and solve the problems we want to solve. 
but we get all of our insight, 100% of our insight comes from the front line. We ask the people on the front line, what should we do, right? And that insight means we get it right 9.9 times out of 10 because the people on the front line are feeling the pain and experience it. And they don't decide your strategy. They don't decide how to run your business, but they give you incredible insight. And that's what I think is missing from the public institutions. You're right. And everything that I think I've achieved successfully has been led by people at the grassroots, the people at the front line, at the coalface, who said, Nazir, the way we're being treated as victims or the way we're being treated as defendants or the way we're being treated as witnesses was shit, right? And I'll tell you why it was shit. It was A, B, and C, and D, and E. And then then we go away and fix that or try and fix that. So it gets better because of their experiences. And you're absolutely right. You know, this is what they could do better. You You know, there are a lot of senior managers and a lot of organizations, a lot of institutions who are so remote they don't know what, what their business is anymore. They don't know what's happening in a, in a ward or on a, on a street or uh, in whatever. They don't know that. And, and yet they are making these decisions, which apparently will determine the strategy and the way things are going. But, you know, you don't really care about a strategy if you, if you can't afford to feed yourself. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And then coming back to something you said a little while ago when you talked about, you know, you, you like to engage with people and, and different networks. Someone said to me once, so if you've got a finance problem or a finance challenge or a process you want to review or adapt or, or improve, what do you do? I said, if I want to solve a finance problem, the last people I send into that meeting is finance people because they've only got, they've only got their lens, right? Tunnel, tunnel vision, tunnel vision. Exactly, yeah. And that's not their fault. That's just because of who they are. Um, so if you want to solve a finance challenge or a finance problem, you send in non-finance people because then you get a fresh perspective and it gives you a different yeah. dimension to consider into that process. And they're the yeah. things that we love as a private sector and a leadership and doing things differently that, again, the public institutions could learn from if they weren't so focused on believing they're getting everything right, yet clearly are not. No, I'm with you on that entirely. I mean, as I said, I'm not an expert in anything, but the people I speak to are. The people who suffer, who are impacted by the decisions made in the public sector are the experts. So get them in the room, understand what they are doing, what can be done differently, and then apply it. Uh, and you know, too often, I'm afraid, we bring in consultants, <laughs> right? Uh, and they're 30-year people who've done their time and they're now retired or maybe retired maybe not and we think that that's the answer and you've made it very very clear the tunnel vision is a significant problem for us they they don't think out of the box they only know one way of working and that's how they apply to every issue you know but there are many ways in which you can change things uh, and i'm afraid the best ways may not be the way you've been taught and it's got to be radical thinking, thinking out of the box, being disruptive. And when people sort of talk about disruption, saying, why are you a disruptor? Why do you want to disrupt stuff? Well, if you're going to do things differently, by default, that's disruptive because you're doing something differently, right? So it's not a negative connotation. I often say to make a difference, you've got to act differently. Of course, yeah, absolutely. And the, and the most insane thing, it's a great saying, isn't it? The most insane, you know, insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. <laughs> Which we do all the time. <laughs> we do. How we do. many times... As it's my point earlier on about we have a knee-jerk reaction to any crisis mm. and we do the same thing and the crisis gets worse. Yeah. So, yeah. and then and we'll do that again, shall we? Uh, <laughs> and literally, they, 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 Jeff, they open a filing cabinet with the crisis management plan that didn't work last time and bring it out again. And, uh, uh, and I really don't think, I mean, they just need a bit of sense checking sometimes. And, but as I say, it's about the, you know, when I talk about diversity, I don't talk about color or 
gender. I talk about different mindsets, you know, diverse thinking. The best decisions are taken by people around the table, as you just alluded to, who bring you a new way of looking at something. Because you're constrained otherwise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But if you if you bring in your your loyal people, the people who always think like you, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir, guess what? Your decision is going to be rubbish. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be the same answer. We've done it before. We'll do it again. Uh, and I think we can. We need to think. We can need to learn from what works. My final point before we go into the last section is I'm going to be a little bit controversial now um, and talk about what I purposely try not to talk about. I'm going to talk about Hancock for a minute, and it's not about the personal, the personality. It's about the action. Yeah. So um, he went on GMB the other morning saying how he went into the jungle to seek forgiveness and how he was really regretful and he takes full responsibility and he's not looking for excuses that, um, yes, I ended up resigning and paying the price for my little escapade in an office, right? Um, and GMB asked a great question and it's a question that he clearly felt uncomfortable with. Had you not been caught on camera, would you still be here now or would you still be in politics, right? And because of the lack of humility he and most other politicians have shown, it didn't matter what he said. We already knew that he'd still be there because it's only because he got caught. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, that's exactly that. I mean, people lie now. Um, you know, I don't know about you, Jeff, but people are lying now, particularly our politicians and leaders, lie more now than I've ever known. You know, we, we may not have had a lot of respect for some for some from 30-odd years ago, you know, that we didn't like what they did, but we never challenged their integrity. You know, when they told us, X was X or Y was Y, we accepted it. Now, Hancock tells us that he, he, he did it to raise awareness of dyslexia or something. He raised awareness of his bank account, didn't he? I mean, uh, uh, did you like the bit as well when he said, I gave away a five-figure sum to charity, right, which was the smallest five-figure sum? <laughs> yeah, I know. He made a six-figure sum. Uh, at the same time, he was publishing, pushing his book, which made a, another six-figure sum. I mean, it's that lack of humility, a lack of self-awareness, you know. Um, you know, we look at ourselves first and think, you know, I don't like me myself, therefore you won't like me. Maybe they need that to be, go into politics these days. You know, I don't know. It's an institutional fundamental failure of, of, of humanity and humane activity. Because, again, if, I, I don't know if you've had the benefit of reading um, Stephen Covey or Turn the Ship Around, which is where um, it, it's an incredible story where there was uh, a fleet of 40 submarines in the American fleet, and it was, this was the worst performing submarine. It couldn't retain staff beyond one tour. And uh, this guy had worked all of his life to become a captain, eventually achieved it, was absolutely over the moon until he was told, you've been given the worst performing submarine in the fleet. Um, right. After the first tour, it became the best performing submarine in the fleet. And he had yeah, two yeah. attitudes. One is, I don't know what you guys know about this submarine, so I'm not going to tell you what to do or even how to do it. All I'm going to ask you is you're going to tell me what you are going to do. You're not going to ask permission. Right, you're just going to tell me what you do, just out of courtesy, so I know what's going on. Yeah. Um, and in addition to that, he said, "My job when I leave this, and I'm only on a three-year commission on this ship. When I leave this ship, it has to be in a materially better position than when I took it over for whoever comes in after me." Whereas when you look yeah. at politicians, they have a three or a five-year agenda, and they don't care if they leave you with a ticking time bomb because we're not in power. Right? So it's an it's an attitude, yeah. Yeah. right? And if we had yeah, a politi yeah. political institution that said we have to leave this in a much, much better state for the people coming on, 
then you think, well, great, now I've got a purpose in life. And that's the reason why nothing ever lasts and there's no long-termism Jeff, in politics. I think, it's, I think it's even worse than that because the, the impression one's getting about some members of the current government is that they are looking for their next job, looking to see what, what they, how they can fleece us uh, to secure their own futures. So it's worse than that. It's never mind thinking long-term and thinking 5, 10, 15, 20 years. It's literally thinking about their own pockets tomorrow. And, and I, I, yeah, it really just... I have to think about our children. I mean, I've got four kids and they're in their 20s. And I have to think about the legacy. What they're seeing now about the world generally scares the living day out of me. Because they're thinking, if you lie, you succeed. If you're able to be very good on the media, you'll succeed. If you're good at social media, you succeed. Rather than if you do a good job and, and try and ensure that others around you do a good job. Uh, and I think that's the challenge we face now is that uh, young will look at... Um, Hancock and others like him and think, I don't need to work really hard, actually. Uh, I can be an influencer. I can be whatever it is, um, rather than actually thinking I need to work hard for a living. I agree with that viewpoint in terms of from that context. But I think they're a lot smarter than we think they are because my children are saying, what a load of old shit is going on here, right? No, no, what they care yeah. about is they care about the planet. They care about the environment. They're actually looking at us like, my God, are you really proud of what you're doing? They're the ones that are influencing change in our behaviour. Jeff, I'm, I'm optimistic about mine as well, in the same re- for the same reason that you've said. Unfortunately, our nine children are, are not all the children, and, uh, <laughs> no, uh, agreed, agreed. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, yeah, there are uh, there are several thousand, millions probably, who are going on social media and thinking, actually, this is the way to succeed. Uh, you know, be as nasty as you possibly can, be as malicious. Look at the mental health problems young people are facing right now. But they need role models, and so I'm hopeful there are, there are. People, your children, my children can be role models for others as well. Uh, never mind for themselves. Well, we've still got David Beckham, right? <laughs> well, yeah, we've got David Beckham. What more could we ask for, you know? Anyway, listen, Nazir, that's been a fa- fascinating conversation. I want to just move into the last bit where I've got a couple of quick questions for you. Of all the things you've done, and you've been, you've been in incredible environments and incredible challenging situations and, and so on. If there was one thing that you had to name that you were most grateful for, what would it be? My family. I mean, I, I'm not going to say it's my work. It's they're my legacy. My 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 parents gave everything for me to be able to study and, and to pursue my career. They have been my rock, and I can't ask for any more than I than than them. Brilliant, fantastic. And then finally, bearing in mind the the, the world we're living in today, with all the stuff we've been talking about, with media, institutions, climate, whatever. If there was one message that you would want to send out, what would that message be? I think I said it earlier on, listening. I'm good at talking. You're good at talking. Lots of people are good at talking. I don't think we listen enough. And there's a large number of people in, in our country, in our world, who just have no voice, uh, who have no platform, who have no ability to be heard. We need to give them the platform they deserve. Fantastic. And then Nazir, finally, what I'm excited about, because I've obviously read it in uh, various press releases, that, um, that they're looking to create a drama series on your book. Yeah, they are. Keely Hawes, is, uh, the, you know, and the actress has bought the book. She, it's her first purchase uh, to produce. And, and the actor playing me, I can't show who it is, is much more handsome than I am, Jeff. So, uh, you know, uh, if, it, if, it, if it hadn't been, I'd be, I'd be telling you to leave the country. But, uh, <laughs> so I'm quite happy about who might be playing me, and that's fine. That's fantastic. Well, listen, this year, I've 
thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy that conversation. I really appreciate your candidness and um, and your transparency and, and sharing with us some of the stories. And if you want to hear more of those incredible stories, and there are more, trust me, then please, please buy his book. This is The Prosecutor. He's also got another book out. What's the, what's the newest book called? It's called The Race to the Top, and that's HarperCollins. And there'll be another fantastic book. So, Nazir, I hope we have paths across again soon. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, um, and thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. What an incredible conversation. A huge thank you to Nazir for taking his valuable time to speak to me today. What a conversation. I've been looking forward to this ever since he agreed to come on the show. If you get the chance to read his book, The Prosecutor, I really urge you to. It takes you into a life of unbelievable behaviours that most of us don't even understand even exist. And if it wasn't for people like Nazir, they will be materially worse than they are now. When you listen to his story and his behaviour and his purpose, it's pretty clear to see how there is so much alignment with someone taking on an establishment in the way in which we did. And of course, leadership, whether it be in public sector institutions or private sector businesses or even SMEs, it's about how we behave as human beings. It's about what's right. It's about serving other people. Nazir said, the one message I would give out to people is the ability to truly listen. Not just hear, but to listen. Listening is an art form, certainly for great leaders, because a great leader will be the last to speak, because he or she is more interested in what everybody else has to say first, because they've learned the art of listening. Now, Nazir is clearly a charismatic character, and he clearly had to be charismatic and tenacious to never give up to get things done. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did, and thanks again, Nazir. I'm Jeff Dewey, author of the best-selling book, Doing the Opposite, and CEO of CloudFM. If you'd like to know more about my podcast or my incredible guests, please visit jeffdewing.co.uk. You can also find out more about CloudFM at cloudfmgroup.com or simply follow us on LinkedIn. Finally, I'd like to offer a big thanks to my team, Nicola Crawshaw at Cloud, Thinking Hat PR, and of course, my incredible production team, What Goes On Media. Thanks for listening.